Okay, so if you have a Bible, we're in Acts chapter 3. If you have one on your phone or in your lap, if you have it from the Black Bibles in front of you, that's page 911. You can turn there and keep it open there. That's the passage we'll be in. Let me pray for us as we look to Acts 3. Father, you are in heaven. We pray to you now that you would send your Holy Spirit and fill us. We pray, Spirit, that you would birth in us conviction of sin, a trust in Christ, and greater faith today. We pray that, Jesus, you would act and speak from heaven through your Spirit-filled people and that we would be your representatives here on earth. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things I've come to realize about myself is that I'm a copycat. Uh, I'm an imitator by nature. I don't mean to me, but basically what I've come to realize about myself is that I have no real personality of my own. I'm basically a sponge that has absorbed bits and pieces of the people around me, right? It's not intentional, but give me enough time just being around someone, and before you know it, pretty soon, I act like they act, and I think like they think, and I end up talking like they talk. Their mannerisms become my mannerisms. Their personality becomes my personality. Right, so when I was a kid, for example, it was my father. Like lots of sons, I loved my dad and I wanted to be just like my dad, and so I imitated everything about my dad. I was the only kid at age seven that dressed like a 40-year-old man, right? So normal people, normal kids would be out on the playground with t-shirt and shorts. I was there in a three-piece suit with a clip-on tie. My father went bald like 10 minutes after he was born, and he combed his hair, his seven strands of hair a certain way, And by age seven, I was combing my hair exactly that same way. To this day, my wife and my mother at times will say to me, you are just like your father, right? When I got a little older and became a teenager, I realized that imitating your dad wasn't cool. And so it was my older cousin, Jim. And before you knew it, I was just like Jim. Jim was a 49ers fan, which made no sense because we lived in New York, but he was a front runner. And so I, before you knew it, had a Jerry Rice jersey and a Joe Montana picture on my wall. Jim listened to U2 and LL Cool J. And before you knew it, I was telling everybody that Mama Said Knock You Out was my favorite song. I had never even heard it. But I talked like Jim. I told stories like Jim. I told jokes like Jim. I went to the same college Jim did. And anyone that ever met Jim and then met me always would say, you remind me a lot of Jim. Then after that, I went to Boston, and I was finally ready to be my own man and discover who I was, and then I met Matt Cruz, who's the pastor of Seven Mile Road, Boston. And week after week, I would hear Matt preach, and I'd sit with Matt at DePetro's Pizza week after week, and he'd talk to me about life and about marriage and about faith and the gospel, and before you knew it, Matt would say things like, we're going to do church like this, and I remember thinking, what does that even mean to do church? You can't do church, but before you knew it, I was telling everybody about how we do church, and we do church this way. And by the time I got to Philly, you were basically getting a shorter, darker, fatter Matt Cruz. That's what you got, right? I've been here. I have to tell you that I had a short stint, I think, of being around Dennis too much, where all of a sudden I started talking loudly for no reason. I stopped singing songs and started screaming songs. I've repented of all of that, and I've been healed now, and I'm back to normal, right? I am an imitator. That's what I am. Now, 
You may not have it as bad as me, but I think that all of us know if you're around someone long enough, before you know it, they rub off on you. And you end up thinking like they think, you end up acting like they act, you end up talking like they talk. In our passage today, we're going to see that the disciples of Jesus had been around him in such a way that Jesus rubbed off on them. Jesus rubbed off on them so much so that you hear them speak, you're thinking you're hearing Jesus speak. When they talked, it was like Jesus was talking. The way they acted was the way that Jesus acted. So much so that if you closed your eyes and you didn't know any better, you would think that you were seeing Jesus act. And you would think that you were hearing Jesus speak. And you would think that Jesus was still doing stuff on the earth. And of course, those of us that have been walking through the book of Acts, Dr. Luke's volume 2 Acts, we know this is exactly what he wants to show us, that Jesus is in fact still doing stuff. Remember, our subtitle to the series is Acts of the Risen Jesus, from heaven, by the power of his Holy Spirit, through his disciples on earth, right? That's what we're seeing. These are the Acts of Jesus by the power of his spirit, through his disciples, on earth. And I think every follower of Jesus and every local church that belongs to Jesus wants the same thing to be said of us. We want so badly for our city and our world to say that when you speak, I hear it like Jesus speaks. Or when this church acts, it feels like Jesus is still on the earth doing some stuff. So we are in Acts chapter 3. Dr. Luke had just told us in the passage we looked at last week in 2 verse 43 that the apostles had done many signs and wonders. And now in Acts 3, we get a front row seat to one of those signs and wonders. In Acts 3, we're going to follow two of the apostles, two disciples of Jesus named Peter and John. We're going to walk with them into the temple. And a miraculous healing is going to happen. And we'll talk through that. But as that healing happens, I want you to look for Jesus in what they do. And listen for Jesus in what they say. So Acts 3 verse 1. This is how it begins. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. So just get the scene in your mind. Peter and John are going to the temple for the 3 p.m. prayer meeting. On their way, they see a lame man lying by the temple gate. Now, undoubtedly, the people who had gone by that way before had seen this man before. They had seen him all the time. They'd seen him because the text says that some people, perhaps his friends, had daily brought this man at the time of high traffic to lie there at the temple gate so that he could beg. So that he could beg. You could picture it in your mind, can't you? He's a regular part of the afternoon commute. If you go that way, you're going to see him every single day. He's there with his cardboard sign. It says, handicapped from birth. Anything will help. Please help. God bless you. Maybe he's got a tin cup that he's shaking, and you can hear the clinking of some coins as some passerbys have thrown in some change. He was there yesterday. 
You will undoubtedly see him there again tomorrow. Every day he's become a part of your commute. And by this point, you've seen him so often, you do what? You do everything you can to avoid eye contact. Not because you're mean, but because what are you going to do? How can you help? He's there yesterday, he'll be there tomorrow. You don't want to even look at the man. And yet, Peter and John now are going to do the exact opposite of that. They're going to make eye contact, and they're in fact going to call on him to make eye contact with them. Verse 3, seeing Peter and John about to go to the temple, he has to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold. You can almost imagine the guy going, then what the heck did you call me for? What did you tell me to look at you for? Just keep walking like everybody else. But Peter continues, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. That's the miracle. Now, let's just make sure for a second that we get all the facts together. So here this is. There's a man who can't walk. He's been carried in by some people, perhaps his friends. What he expects to hear isn't what Peter and John actually say to him, but what he gets from them is better than what he expected. He's told to rise up and walk. God heals him, and by the end, the people are amazed. We get that right? There's a man who can't walk. He's carried in by some people. What he expects to hear isn't what he hears. What he gets is better than what he expected. He's told to rise up and walk. God heals him, and the people are amazed. Okay, do me a favor. Turn to Dr. Luke's first volume, right? So if you've got a phone, scroll to Luke for a second. If you've got a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 5. And I'm going to read from verse 17 and following. In the Black Bibles, that's page 861. Luke 5, and I just want you to listen to this passage. In Dr. Luke's first volume, chapter 5, verse 17, it says this. This is three years earlier in the life and ministry of Jesus. On those days, on one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the mist before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered to them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know, 
that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Now tell me, does that sound familiar? Because if we get the facts right, there's a man who can't walk, and he's carried in by some people, perhaps some friends, and what he expects to hear isn't what Jesus says, but what he gets is better than what he expected, and he's told to rise up and walk, and God heals him, and by the end, the people are amazed. If you flip back to Acts 3, I want to suggest it's almost as if if you closed your eyes and you didn't even know better, you would think that you were listening to Jesus when the apostles spoke. And you would think that you were seeing Jesus when the apostles acted. Because these are the acts of the risen Jesus from heaven by the power of his spirit through his disciples on earth. He was still at work. That's what Dr. Luke's second volume is about. Jesus is still at work. Now, on that day in Luke 5, three years earlier, when Jesus performed that miracle, if you left that crowd that day, you left with two thoughts. You walked away thinking two things. One, Jesus has power to heal. And two, Jesus is claiming to have power to do more than heal. You walked away thinking Jesus clearly has power to heal and Jesus seems to have a power to do something even more than physical healing, to meet a need that's even deeper than physical healing. Well, Jesus having rubbed off on these disciples who act like him and talk like him, those are exactly the same things that you'll learn from this passage in Acts 3. Three years later, if you walked away from Solomon's colonnade, Solomon's portico that day, you were thinking the exact same thing. Jesus has power to heal, and Jesus has power to meet a deeper need than even physical healing. Let's learn those two things quickly together. The first one, and this will be longer than the second. Jesus has power to heal. When the man is healed, a crowd of people gather because they all recognize him and go, you were begging there, lying crippled, as you've been doing every single day, and now you're here standing and leaping and praising God, and everyone gathers together, and now suddenly every head turns towards John and Peter. Every eye is looking at them. Every eyeball is fixed on them. And what's funny is Peter and John, who one minute ago had told the man, look at us, now tell the crowd, what are you all looking at us for, right? This is verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? And then verse 16, it's his name, the name of Jesus. By faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. You hear what Peter says? Don't look at us. 
Why are you all staring at us as though some power or some piety in us did this? You, you see what he's saying? There's no quality about in here, nothing about me, no magic in my hands, no formula or incantation that I did this. In fact, Peter is saying Jesus did this. It was his name. It was faith in his name that did this. It's by Jesus that this man has become strong. Jesus healed because Jesus has power to heal. And friends, as those who want to sound like Jesus and want to act like Jesus, as those whom Jesus has rubbed off on, we want to go into our world and declare Jesus still has power to heal. We want to be the kind of community that looks at suffering, does not avoid eye contact, but looks at it and becomes agents of healing, whatever that might be in God's plan. We want to say to Anne Frank Elementary School, and we want to say to the city of Philadelphia, we want to say to North Hills, and we want to say to Christ Home, and we want to say to the red light district of Mumbai, we don't have earthly power or resources, but what we have we give to you Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is still at work, and Jesus still heals. Now, this particular passage has specifically in view physical healing. So I want us to consider that for a minute. I want us to take a tangent for a minute to talk about physical healing. And I want to do that because I know that this isn't theoretical for many of you, meaning there are many of you in our congregation at Seven Mile Road Church that suffer with illness, that suffer with chronic pains and sickness. Some of our little ones are ill. And so this isn't theoretical. Some of you have loved ones, and you're watching them sick and suffering. And so this isn't theological trivia for you. This is reality. And perhaps the question that's always bubbling up in your soul is, does God still do this today? Does Jesus still heal? And how do we think biblically about this? So I want us to consider that. I want you to hear that the Bible would say to you, God loves you. And when I say God loves you, I want you to know I don't just mean your heart. And I don't just mean your soul or your inner being. God loves you from head to toe and quite literally from head to toe. He loves you. You, your whole being. I, I love my child. And I don't just love Hannah's heart or Micah's inner being. A, a, a scratch on their hand matters to me because they, their whole being matters to me. I love them from head to toe. And God loves us that way. And Jesus, when he came into the earth, showed us that he cares about physical bodies. And moreover, he cares about ailments too, and diseases too, and sicknesses to those physical bodies. That means you can know with every fiber of your being, Jesus cares when you get cancer. Jesus cared and cares when you have depression, when you have insomnia and anxiety and cannot sleep, when you suffer from chronic pain, when the migraines come again, when the tumors are growing, when there's that chemical imbalance, when you are broken body and emotionally and mentally and physically, the Lord God cares. You see, the idea that our bodies don't really matter 
This stuff doesn't really matter. What really matters is the soul inside. This stuff will go away. The soul is what matters. That is old Greek philosophy, not Bible. Because the testimony of the scriptures is that from the first chapter, God made a physical world. He made mountains and hills and trees and rivers. And he made food and he made bodies and legs to run and arms to move. And God pronounced over all of it his benediction. This is good. This is very good. God's design for the world was health and human flourishing. And it is when man sinned against God. As one pastor said, we kicked open the door to death and decay. And suddenly sin entered the world and ravaged everything so that we became diseased. First in our inner being, our souls became diseased. Our souls became, our hearts became deaf so that we could not hear God. And blind so that we could not see or be aware of God. And lame so that we lay motionless. Nothing about us moving towards God. Dead even, the scriptures say, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But any of you who have read the Bible knows that sin didn't stop as a spiritual thing. No, sin wreaked havoc on everything. It wreaked havoc on the creation It wreaked havoc in relationships on the world. So now came in brokenness in everything. Now came in brokenness in your body and in your mind and in your emotions and in the whole being. But that also means that when Jesus Christ came into the world and when he came to drink in the poison of sin and suffer for sin and take upon himself the curse of sin and the consequences of sin, when he came to take away the effects of sin, He came to redeem everything that sin had destroyed, both spiritual and physical. And so you'll read that Jesus' ministry is full of healings. I won't read it now for the sake of time, but if you go to Matthew 8, there's a scene where he heals Peter's mother-in-law. Then he heals every sick person that was brought to him. And Matthew says, this was all done to fulfill the words of the prophet Isaiah, who said he would carry our diseases and bear our illness. Now, don't miss that, because Matthew says, when I saw him physically heal people, I knew it was the fulfillment of what Isaiah said the Messiah would do, that the Messiah's ministry would be to heal physically, to bear diseases, to redeem us from this brokenness. And so, this is what Jesus did. And in fact, what else are we getting to do but celebrate in one week how pronounced this is that Jesus Christ died and rose again physically to show us that we will not inherit a world where we're disembodied spirits floating on clouds, playing harps, but rather we will be real bodies in a real world that will no longer be subject to death and decay. That is the future that is awaiting all of us. So here's what the Bible would say. There is a future for all of us where we will be finally and fully and permanently forever physically healed. But as a preview of that, every now and then, God gives us glimpses of that glorious future that awaits all of us by healing some of us temporarily here on earth. We get glimpses of that. Now, if you were to ask, why does God do that? Why does God heal? What's the purposes for that? 
On the one hand, God alone knows. It's his right. Another, from what's revealed in Scripture, I was hearing this systematic theologian named Wayne Grudem, and he gave some reasons revealed to us, at least in the Scriptures, why God heals. He gives a number of them. Let me just give you three. One would be, it's God's act of love and mercy to that person. Right? We already talked about that. God loves us whole, body and soul. And so God will often show that kind of love and mercy by healing. Another reason God did miracles as we see them in the scriptures is to validate the message of his gospel and those messengers. So I'll read you just one verse. You can just jot this down and look at it later. Hebrews 2 verse 3 says, It, being our salvation, listen to this verse, was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The writer of Hebrews is saying, God often accompanied the message, the proclamation of the gospel with signs and wonders to give validity to, to authenticate that this was really coming from him. So when Jesus did ministry, when the apostles did ministry, signs and wonders were everywhere so that everyone would know this is coming from God. It validated their message. It validated them as his messengers. One pastor pointed out, if you read through the New Testament and look at all the healings, one of the things you'll notice is with the exception of a few notable exceptions, like Lazarus, Eutychus, Dorcas, most of the other, that's a real name, by the way, I saw you smile. Most of the other healings actually don't happen to followers of Jesus. Most of the other healings happen to people as they're introduced to Jesus, giving validity to who Jesus was. Right? And, and this pastor went on to say perhaps that's one of the reasons why on the front lines of evangelism, where Jesus is not known and named, maybe that's why you see more miracles. Whatever the case, it was given in the scriptures to validate this message and the messenger. Moreover, it's to bring glory to God. Wherever the miracles happen, there's awe and there's wonder and amazement and worship. And it's signs that Jesus really did bring the kingdom of God. This is why he heals, more still we could say. Then why doesn't God always heal? And what about when God doesn't heal? You see, I, I'm sure if you've been around Christianity long enough, you've probably heard at some point some unhelpful thing that says to you, listen, if you would just have enough faith, you will be healed. And if you're not healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. I want you to hear, at least from the scriptures, you will find that there are plenty of mature believing, faithful Christians who do not receive miraculous healings in this life. For example, later in Acts, we'll meet the Apostle Paul. When Paul comes, he heals all kinds of people, raises someone from the dead, and yet this very Paul will say things like this. In 2 Timothy 4, he's finishing up his letter. He's giving salutations, telling you where this person is and that person is, and he says, Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. You almost go, how did Paul leave anybody sick? Couldn't he have just, there's nobody sick around Paul. I left Trophimus sick at Miletus. He'll tell Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, Timothy, don't just drink some water, drink some wine for your stomach and your frequent ailments. Not just poof, 
but almost some kind of medicinal use. And we even, as Christians say, in God's common grace to us, thank God he's given wisdom and intellect for some of you to be physicians and doctors and nurses and PTs and OTs, and God is at work through your work. And praise the Lord for that. Then he'll have other people. You could read about Epaphroditus and so on for the sake of time. We won't go through it all here. But the scriptures would tell us then that there's nothing in the Bible to suggest that if you're really spiritually mature, you won't get sick or suffer. In fact, sometimes the clearest evidence of strong faith is not being healed from sickness, but how you endure sickness, how you walk through suffering. Sometimes the strongest faith, the most beautiful faith is seen when we, like Job from the Old Testament, say, no matter what comes, I will not curse God and die. Though he slays me, yet will I still love him. One person said it this way, sometimes God glorifies himself by helping sick Christians get well, and sometimes God is glorified in help sick, helping sick Christians suffer and die well. And I can tell you, I have seen both. I have seen both. In fact, I'll tell you, one of the most impactful things in my life that I hope I will never forget is watching my father-in-law die. He was, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and we did exactly what the Bible tells us to do. We prayed with faith in Jesus. And Jesus did not choose to extend healing. But I watched that man die. I watched him on his deathbed say five times before he died, use me, Lord, use me, Lord, use me, Lord. And I wanted to think to myself, he's on his deathbed. How is the Lord about to use him now? But he did. Because I heard that man also say, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then I saw that line go flat. And it's like Paul says, whether in life or in death, I want to glorify God. And sometimes the glory of God is seen in how Christians suffer well. So here's what we'd say. Sometimes God heals miraculously. Sometimes he heals progressively. Sometimes he heals through human means and doctors and medicine. And sometimes he will let you die and be healed when Jesus returns. So what should we do? We should pray. James says, are any of you sick? Pray. Pray big, audacious, bold, believing prayers. Pray big, honest prayers. Pray. Are any of you sick? Call the elders. Let them anoint you with oil, a sign of the Spirit, and let them pray. And at the same time, we should trust. God is God, and we are not. And his good purposes will be accomplished whether in healing or whether in suffering well. Jesus has power to heal. That's what you saw in Luke 5. That's what the apostles showed you in Acts 3. But Jesus also has the power to meet an even deeper need. Let me say that one quickly and then we'll be done. Jesus, the apostles show us, have the power to meet our deepest need. If you were back in Luke's volume 1, when the friends carry in that lame man, in Luke 5, they drop him through the roof. They finally get him to Jesus. You can imagine all the trouble they went to. Through the crowds, they dug a hole in the roof. They finally get their friend down to Jesus. And that tension, you can imagine the climax of that moment. Everyone's waiting to hear what Jesus is going to do. And Jesus says, man, your sins are forgiven. 
I want to say the whole air of that room must have been just gone. Couldn't you imagine that the friends would have been saying, we did not go through all that trouble so that you could say some kind of religious mumbo-jumbo. We went through that trouble so that you could make the man walk. That's why we did that. We didn't tear a hole through the roof so that you could say that. We tore a hole through the roof because what this man needs is to walk. His deepest, most obvious, most pressing need is to walk. And yet, Jesus saw in the man a need deeper than they were aware of. Now, how do we know that? Just consider this for a second. This guy and his friends came in thinking, the deepest need of my life is to walk. If I could just walk, my life would be set. I'd be complete. I'd be happy finally. I I would never need anything again. That's what the man came in thinking. Can I ask you a question? How many of you here are able to walk? And if I asked you, are you totally happy? Every need of your life met? Totally content? Never anything bubbling up in your soul? No cravings? No longings? Are you totally content saying, I've never had an unhappy day in my life? Or would you rather say and see with me if all this guy got was the ability to walk, I can guarantee you that after six months, even that would have gotten lame. By the way, did you see what I did there? That was brilliant, right? (laughs) What does that mean? That means that this man had something deeper that cured legs couldn't fix. I know that because you have fine legs. Just about every one of you, bodies that work, and yet you you know there's something deeper. That means that Jesus saw there is broken in this man something deeper than just his legs. And the entire message of Jesus is, I came to meet that need, to meet you at your deepest need. This man needs something bigger, deeper, more eternal than temporary physical legs. And Jesus' entire good news is to say, you don't know this yet, but I came to trade places with you. You hear me say, man, your sins are forgiven because I am about to hear the Father turn his face away from me and have all the sins of the earth loaded down on me. You're about to go up free and walk because I am about to be pinned down onto a cross. And I will lie motionless and dead in a grave so that you can bounce and spring up to life. This is the good news that Jesus had come to pronounce. And in Acts 3, Peter and John, who sound like Jesus and talk like Jesus and minister like Jesus, is saying to these people, if you think this man's greatest need is for me to throw some change in his clinking cup or for him to have legs that walk, you need to know Jesus of Nazareth came to do something bigger and deeper than you could possibly imagine. You know what's crazy about this passage? Dr. Luke tells us that this all happened at Solomon's portico. I I won't take you there for the sake of time. Jesus stood in that exact spot sometime earlier. In John chapter 10, you could jot that one down too. John chapter 10, verses 22 and following, Jesus stands in Solomon's portico. And there some people come to him and go, just tell us, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah or not? And he says, you don't believe anything I say. And not only that, you don't even believe the works that I do. You don't see the miracles and see the point of who I really am. 
And you wonder if that memory came back to Peter's mind. Because Peter is standing here going, you all missed it. You all missed what the miracles were pointing you to. And then Peter says this, verse 13, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. It's sort of just like Acts 2. There's a sign from heaven, a crowd gathers, Peter proclaims Jesus. Now there's a miracle from heaven, a crowd gathers, he proclaims Jesus. And just like Acts 2, he says, you missed who Jesus was. And he recounts everything we're going to remember this week, from Palm Sunday to Good Friday. He came, and you missed it. You traded him for a murderer named Barabbas. The, the Roman governor was ready to release him, and you denied him. And you, the paradox of paradox, you took the author of life, and you killed him you killed him but even now God raised him from the dead so that if you will turn Jesus can heal the deepest need of your heart and take that which is fractured and lame and blind and deaf in here and make it whole and so he says in 19 repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And he goes on to quote Samuel, and he goes on to quote Moses, and he goes on to talk about Abraham, all to say, if you will now turn to Jesus... If you will turn to Jesus, then that deep need of your soul can be healed. And he says, your sins will be blotted out. You picture like an ink blot on a slick, dry erase board that you with one wipe take it clean. No streaks, no smudge, no spot at all, completely clean. That is what Jesus can do with your whole track record. Because he came to trade places with you. You give him your sin, he gives you his righteousness. You give him your sin, he's wiped out, you're wiped clean. Times of refreshing will come if you come to Jesus. And then he says, and this Jesus whom heaven has received until the time to fully restore everything, and then he will return. Let me say this one last thing and I'll be done. There's a time coming, Dr. Luke says here, through the mouth of Peter. When Jesus will return to restore everything. When you picture in your mind how this miracle happened. Could you see the man? Do you remember the one detail? He was this way from birth. This wasn't a later thing that happened to him. He had never stood up on his legs in his whole life. He lied there from when he was an infant, and now he's 40-something years old. And suddenly this man is told for the first time in his life, get up and walk. And these ankles that had never known pressure before suddenly have pressure put on them. And these feet that have never moved before start to have toes that move. And these muscles in his calf start to hold him up. And then you know how a baby has to learn to crawl before it walks? None of that here. No training time. He immediately stands up and walks and runs and leaps and praises God. When you think of that, I couldn't help but go, this is what heaven will be like. Don't you go, there is a day coming 
when there will be legs that never move, that suddenly don't need a training manual and don't need time to be taught, and nobody has to take baby steps, they will go from crippled to sprinting. And eyes that had never seen will open itself and see a new world. And ears that had never heard will suddenly hear the voice of Jesus. And all of us that will go motionless in the grave will come back and spring back to life. You can't read Acts 3 and go, this is a glimpse of heaven. And that's exactly what it was supposed to be. The prophets had said long ago, when the Messiah comes, I won't read you now, Isaiah 35 says, when he comes... The deaf will hear, the blind will see, lame legs will leap like the deer. And Acts 3 is saying, what Isaiah said just started in the person of Jesus. And it will completely come when he returns. And if you will but turn to him, you can be healed, body, soul, and spirit, whether temporarily now or eternally then. So Jesus has power to heal and to meet your deepest need, so turn to him. I want to pray. As we pray, I want to pray especially for those who need healing. So if that's you and if you even want to be prayed for today, I want to invite you to say, Pastor Binu will be up there, I will be up here. If you know Christians, you're welcome to tap someone and say, would you pray that I would be healed? Don't leave here without being prayed for today because we have faith in Jesus. And if, if you need spiritual healing in your soul, talk to someone and pray for that. If you don't know someone at this church, one of the pastors are here that can pray for you as well. Let's pray to the Lord for healing. Lord Jesus, we believe in you and in your name, and we pray that you would extend mercy and grace. We pray for those who here are suffering with illness and ailments of every kind. We know and believe, Jesus, that you are in heaven and that you are acting from heaven by your spirit through us. And so we pray that even today that you would set some people free from their illness, from their sickness. We pray, O oh Lord, that there would be good diagnosis that we hear soon because we have come to you in prayer. We pray that those who need prayer would seek it out today and that everyone who needs healing in body and in soul, would today turn to Jesus that we might be healed. We turn to you in faith and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll come now to communion. So here's how you can respond to his word.